Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So welcome back to the podcast, guys. Um, Today we have Tracy Reed on, and we're going to actually talk about something we haven't talked a lot about on the podcast, which is something that we have in common, which is a lot more with multifamily housing. So you've heard me talk about my unpopular opinion that maybe everybody doesn't need a single family home, but we haven't talked a lot about what the other alternatives are. So today I wanted to, uh, of course, bring on another female entrepreneur onto the show, someone in the construction and design industry, um, but also to talk about some of the different ways that we do that. So Tracy, welcome to the show. Introduce yourself, tell us who you are, what you're up to, and uh, we'll just get talking. Awesome. Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, My name is Tracy Reed. I am a, I guess, 38. I feel like I'm young, but I'm <laughs> getting older. Uh, you're old architect uh, based in Portland, Maine. Um, I have had my own firm, Dexterous Creative, for almost eight years now, um, as of January. Um, and yeah, mostly do commercial um, tenant fit outs um, or alterations, but also do some multi and uh, single family houses. So right now I've got, I just finished up a large artist studio project in Portland, um, just over 17,000 square feet, new construction, but also have a a couple dental offices, uh, working at a veterinary clinic now, and um, a variety of other projects as we do in Maine. Yes, absolutely. I think it's very common uh, for architects not just to practice one version um, of architecture because it's a smaller state and so you have to be a little bit more diversified. Um, But I think one of the things that comes into it, and whether it's multifamily housing or some of your tenant fit outs, is occupants. And so Mm -hmm. I know you've done a lot of research over uh, your career and the stuff that you've been doing about occupants. And so can you tell us a little bit more about how that has implications on the built environment that you're providing? Sure. Um, I don't know if I've done too much research, but I guess perhaps compared to some people, <laughs> um, architects in America aren't exactly research heavy. Um, yeah. So I guess I'm really interested in how people utilize space, um, but mostly I'm interested in sort of patterns, I guess it would be considered more of a urban planning. Um, I used to do, I spent, after the last election in 2016, I had a hard time looking at anyone and I was sad. So when I was in Portland, I had my sunglasses and my earbuds in probably just like everyone when I left the house, um, cause I didn't want to cry. Um, I was very involved in the, um, election race. I was the vice chair of the Portland Dems. Um, so it was, it was a tough, it was a tough loss. It seems like there are a lot of elections that are tough, you know, 2000, 2004, um, or also really tough years, 2010 in Maine, but 2016, was a, was a gut punch. So I started doing, um, energy audits. I wanted to try something different. Um, and, honestly needed to get out of town. So I 
started doing energy audits uh, for large uh, multifamily properties. I called it my 50 state listening tour. Um, I just really wanted to see like what went wrong um, in America and just get out of the bubble that is the Portland Peninsula, which I where I, which is where I live. And I love uh, the peninsula, but sometimes we have, we have these social groups that we construct that are very similar. So um, having been engaged in politics for a long time, I mean, every election is really close, but that one was just a tough one. And I wanted to kind of understand what was going on. So I only hit 38 states, but yeah, I think I traveled over 150,000 miles the year after the election. Just all these all these interesting places I would never go like Alabama and Utah and a lot of time in Texas and Florida and Arizona. Um, some out in California, I joked, I flew by night, which as an energy auditor is kind of a, a funny thing. Um, but we were essentially conducting audits on large multifamily projects between a hundred and typically a thousand units um that were either being refinanced or sold and as a part of their financing package in order to get better interest rates um they were encouraged to increase their energy efficiency both um a lot of electricity but then also water conservation as you can imagine in places like arizona uh, were big so you pull up to these, uh, you know, thousand unit apartment complex in Phoenix, and there would be all these beautiful water fountains and green grass, um, which was just incredible. Um, and a lot of incandescent lights. So what I did in my field work was I had to take inventories of everything so that our team uh, back home could model everything. Thankfully, I didn't have to do that myself. Uh, I just had to take <laughs> take measurements, test all the toilets, and look at, you know, appliances that weren't uh, efficient, that sort of thing. Um, but wonderfully, during that process, I was able to make observations about all these communities and places that I got to see um, and it was it was pretty fascinating uh, both more on like I guess maybe a macro scale just you know a lot of these they these some of them were affordable housing but most of them were market rate some were luxury um, developments and it was just fascinating. I mean, I spent my days like opening everyone's refrigerator and like going through their bathrooms essentially because um, I had to take serial numbers down um, and model numbers. Um, and yeah, it's, it's funny. The New York Times yesterday had a article guess which candidate this person supports based on the contents of their refrigerator. And that reminded me a lot of like these sort of regional um yeah obviously in the south there's some incredible cooking and um well in a lot of cases down south you know like um i would usually be going around with the facilities um 
maintenance guy. Um, there were, I think, maybe two or three women that I came across in the year and a half that I was traveling. Um, almost all guys, though. Um, I learned to speak a little Spanish. Um, interesting I'm a quarter Korean so sometimes I'm like slightly ethnically ambiguous so that worked out well for me um, in Arizona and Texas sometimes people would think I was Mexican which was great because um, I was entering people's homes and everyone obviously is noticed but they uh, sometimes a family member gets the notice and not you and people are on sleeping beds uh so there would be despite you know knocking announcing ourselves and these notices sometimes you would be in someone's kitchen you know taking down taking these measurements recording these light fixtures and 10 or 15 minutes later someone comes out of a back room <laughs> that has been sleeping and you're just like oh my god i'm so sorry Fortunately, I'm a very tiny, I'm like 5'2", um, and I'm pretty nerdy looking, so I don't think I look like very threatening physically. Um, it wouldn't take much to um, knock me out, but uh, I noted, you know, after the election, it was definitely when I would pull up, you know, I had my, my clipboard and um, my silly uh, water... Um, I had a gauge to measure the gallons per minute of water from the faucets and things like that. And honestly, I think some people thought I was ice. So it was, I was very cognizant of the fact that I was entering people's houses and because of what was happening nationally, the immigration policies and the areas that I was located, that my presence on sites was very scary for people because they just they didn't realize I was an architect um, trying to save them money on their utilities um, so I try to be pretty sensitive to that but it's um, it's pretty fascinating I mean in Las Vegas you know these you would see these apartments that it would be like a two-bedroom apartment and you would have like three sets of bunk beds and a crib and beds in the living room and everyone, you know, this is not an affordable housing complex, but um, you have people surviving and making it work um, in less than ideal situations. Um, a lot of the complexes were not, you know, obviously serviced by public transportation. Um, require a lot of driving, a lot of freeway. I was in Atlanta a lot. Um, and you just realize how these are like food desert areas sometimes that they're not walkable to a large extent, regardless of whether or not it's affordable housing complex. These developments are servicing folks that can't afford to own a home um, and are just surrounded by large swaths of asphalt for surface parking. Um, so it really got me thinking a lot about just community planning. And, you know, I've lived in Portland, Maine without a car for seven and a half years. Um, I walk or ride everywhere when I'm in town and it's just so wonderful. But there's just not much of 
America where that's possible, um, car ownership or vehicle ownership is really expensive. Um, and I, in addition to helping the environment, I'd like to think, am able to save a lot of money personally. So, you know, we have populations of people that, you know, I realize in my work is technically was at the time focused on helping people save money um, on their utilities. And a lot of them, like down in Arizona and things, will have have a gauge in their kitchen largely um, where you basically are prepaying electricity with a, like putting a credit card in and everything is prepaid or it like shuts your electricity off because anyway yeah so that was that was pretty shocking to see those sorts of things at least I don't see here in Maine very much um, literally people feeding the meter um, to the utilities or losing power immediately um, those sort of setups are just again not something you see here so it was it was pretty eye-opening to have that experience and just see how how challenging it is to in you know these communities again I'm a huge comp uh, proponent of density I purchased this single-family house um, in August of 2019 where I lived and uh, converted it to a two-family which has been wonderful I finished the project last March right right before COVID hit um, and it's so wonderful um, and so it provides a lot of economic security, I would say, to me as a young prof small business owning professional working from home to have a tenant that's essentially paying my mortgage for me. Um, and I also have two parking spaces, which in Portland are valuable, and I rent those. So, you know, if I have to choose from, honestly, um, sharing my bank account with a dude and having two incomes, I feel much more secure with a tenant. Um, again, has had a background check, and my tenant's really amazing. We have, you know, pancake Sundays, and uh, we have veg a lovely vegetable garden um, together, and it's just it's really great. Um, so, I feel like there aren't very many American families who couldn't um, benefit financially and also socially from densifying. Um, my house, when I bought it, it's a little over 1,500 square feet. So my unit is <laughs> about 1,200 square feet, three bedrooms, one bath, and then one of them, one of the bedrooms is technically my office, but my tenant has a very small studio and um, also is a small business owner and has a works outside the home so he has an office that he goes to so and workshop so both of us typically in a non-covid land are not home much so honestly my space is on way too big I could honestly if it weren't for my massive 77 pound dog and cat um I would probably live in the studio which is a first floor um, studio and I will probably at some point if I continue living here um, as I get older um, utilize that because it is a first floor studio with a full bathroom um, so that's 
partly also my aging in place strategy um, or someone else's because again, we are a graying state. I am grading. That's one thing we all have in common is we're getting older and our knees are going. As I mentioned, uh, when we signed on, my dog Blake, who is 77 pounds, uh, just tore his meniscus um, and is going to be in a sling. Um, as of next Friday when he has surgery. So I'm not quite sure how I'm going to lug him up and down the stairs uh, for a month or so. So it is one of those reminders that someday that might be me. Um, but yeah, again, we are so lucky in Maine and specifically in Portland that it's I can walk within three blocks to three different grocery stores um, that are organic and have vegan options and local produce and the symphony and, you know, the art museum is less than a mile away and the ocean and all these things. And it's so wonderful. And part of the reason I moved here from Washington state in 2003 is because it seemed like a place where you could live in a very sustainable fashion um, easily. But in a lot of these places like Atlanta and Houston and um, it, Dallas, it's Philadelphia. You spend hours in a car every day. And again, a lot of these workers are not, they don't have a lot of lot of extra income to be spent spending on you know gas which is just really volatile right. so it was just um I think that experience it it was a really wonderful it was a really wonderful experience just to talk with people again I, I was um they were stuck with me for like six or seven hours while I was going through these um buildings um so I would have a wonderful time talking with these facility managers about their community. And obviously I'd meet all these wonderful, wonderful people. I saw, especially down South, like a lot of living rooms. When you walk in, there are framed pictures of young black men that are on the coffee table. And their sons and brothers and fathers who have died. Um, and it is shocking to be confronted with that on a daily basis as you're just going through and apartment after apartment that you're going through, you see these tributes that are, you're just spending, being so close in these people's houses. Granted, I was only in each unit for like 30 minutes it's it makes it makes it feel really close all of these sort of struggles that america is um experiencing and it was quite a privilege as a person and as architect just to see how get such an intimate look of how people use are using space like where these spaces are and just try to think about like how we can better serve people. 
I think with the election and everything that's going on right now, you know, and talking about this and how, you know, when I do say like, oh, you know, maybe everybody doesn't need a single family home. Like you brought up so many great points. Like you bought a single family home and you converted it into two units and we don't live, you know, multi-generational anymore. Like they used to do. And we have all of these socioeconomic issues that are related to some of these housing developments. And I think um, as architects, maybe we've always been interested in some of this urban planning. I mean, if you look back Uh at some of the architectural greats who tried to create these things that they thought were utopias, and then also wonder if, you know, that you touched on some great points there, which is like, we know what we know, right? We know Uh what our basis in their experiences. And so you were able to go out and go into these different areas and see. Right. For a number of years, I did the same thing, energy engineering, spending a lot of time. Most of what I did was uh, low-income affordable housing units, yeah. um, which is yet another demographic that that we sort of add into that, um, especially in a areas very valuable. A very valuable. See the inside, like you're not just designing for a Vesta or some, a client who's like, we need 10 units on the site. That's a different, that is, that's one, that's your, that's your program. That's great. But having spent hundreds and hundreds of hours in these units, seeing how they're being used in real life is an incredibly valuable Part to your practice, I'm sure. It, it's extremely valuable to have um, a that level of contact with so many more people, right? Right. So, like, you know, if you're just designing single-family homes, maybe you do a certain number of them every year, but it's pretty low, uh-huh. and you have kind right. of a a typical who wants to either live in Maine or move to Maine kind of atmosphere. Uh-huh. This gives you the opportunity to also talk about other strategies and to take another step back and look at that socially, which is, you know, it's all well and good, like you said, to create a program, like we need 10 more units, but to create neighborhoods. And so I even find that with what I do in my practice with doing, you know, zero energy homes and a lot more residential and creating these neighborhoods is we don't want to create subdivisions where we just have all these houses stacked together. We want to create neighborhoods of like-minded individuals and these bigger community projects should always should be the same too and like you pointed out the just you know yards of asphalt and stuff um we did projects all over the country as well and i remember distinctly we were out in california and we were doing a zeroscaping project because yep they they have a drought area right and they just have all of this grass all through this complex right right? and they're not Uh using it you know so we created a a field so that the kids that lived in there you know have like a soccer field and all of that right and then we got rid of a lot of the grass because this housing authority was watering just yards and yards of grass and it's like and sometimes it's like three or four feet strips next to sidewalks that aren't really getting utilized so right Right. so provide a playing field because provides an experience nice have, right, for those exactly. people who live there. Right. Like what experience are they really getting out of the grass strip that's next to the sidewalk, mm-hmm. right? Like maybe, right. Exactly. maybe it's you better plant to plant trees there. and shade or gardens <laughs> right. or, you know, right. all just this expansive, yep. like grass is cheap, right? So, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's cheap to put in, but it's not cheap to maintain. It's so you know? expensive it's to maintain. Absolutely. Especially in drought areas mm-hmm. where you 
where you have to water it, right? So now we've got this additional utility that we're watering all this space. And so we're not thinking about our community. We're just like, oh, we'll plant grass. And maybe it's this architecture profession that we're, uh, I don't know, into the aspects of the anthropology of these communities, right? So like, what, Uh what does the community actually want or need? And like you said, there are different areas where, you know, we were down in Austin, Texas, and like, it's just spread out one story, you know, two story, maybe flat living. Like, is this, Uh how is this? And it's, and it's only broken up by family or elderly, like those are the only two classifications we have, like, well, you know, uh-huh. do, do we really like what, what goes into it? Um, you know, from my right. aspect, we were doing a lot more with the energy engineering. So I was both data collecting on site, which was great, like you said, to have access uh-huh. to these spaces, but then also doing the energy the projects. And as a person who's really interested in it, there are eight climate zones in the United States. And so for me to see Mm -hmm. how they operate. So to like in Austin, Texas, we were talking about dehumidification because healthy indoor air quality and moisture are an issue in the Northeast in Maine. We're concerned about the nine months of heating season we have, you know, it's so totally different how everywhere. And so Mm -hmm. in, in Texas, they had done, they replaced, I think, toilets and faucets, right? So like yep. you said. Those um, are huge. Yep. Low-hanging fruit. <laughs> low-hanging fruit, right? Shower, shower heads. Yep. And they saved, I want to say it was like $18 million across their portfolio oh, yeah. or something, Absolutely. right? So yep. now they were looking at, okay, how do we improve the durability of our buildings? Like we're going to do a window project or we're going to upgrade our mechanicals or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it was really interesting to me to see how some of the energy aspects were then rolled into the durability of the building and the quality of, you know, the, the spaces and um, what they could do with it. And so it's, it's a multifold process, but I still uh-huh. think that um, the one thing that they weren't really looking at was the, the communities that they create. And in some cases, you know, like you said, you'll, you'll have some like-minded individuals, you'll go into their, their units. They've, they've, almost kind of created their own neighborhood within the the piece that they they live in but if we're really going to push for this you know maybe not everybody can afford a single family home because that's the reality in our country right i mean how do we in portland a single family home like on the peninsula you know you're starting at half a million to just basically get a gut job right so i mean there are very few people who can afford to even buy a house in Portland. And I I had a condo before um, I bought the house and um, condos are, I I guess I would rather have an apartment or a house than a condo. Um, The structure, it's a really interesting thing, the idea of the self-governing structure. but it can be definitely challenging. You hear all these sort of horror stories about um, just strange politics in condo associations. Um, And it doesn't take much to have someone, especially as someone in the built environment, um, it's definitely hard sometimes to feel like people often don't want to pull permits for things or don't understand zoning and 
trying to be that sort of when it comes to prioritizing community maintenance or being the reminder about things like we need to pull a permit for that it can be pretty uncomfortable in the association um so especially for small ones like i we had four units in our building and two owners could make decisions for everyone and that's can be uncomfortable <laughs> um so i think perhaps with some of the bigger buildings um if you have a strong personality um just your numbers are able to kind of equalize um i would say though in terms of the sort of community uh, my biggest thing is so i'm a member of portland community squash which is um a nonprofit in portland that we play squash and we also um, work with a lot of kids in the school system. We have um, junior programs. It's called Rally Portland. And um, all of our adults are either mentoring or volunteering at the facility in some way. Um, so, like, we start with our kids when they're in sixth grade and we mentor them, the single student, through college. Um, so, it's great. You kind of are able to develop a relationship with that student and their family as they're essentially going from middle school through through at least um, their undergraduate education. Um, and it's been interesting watching that organization mature. I think it's been three or four years since we've been in our current building. Um, but our, our goal is that our membership and our organization should reflect the demographics of our city and our public schools, uh, which Squatch typically has been kind of a white one percenter um, group, kind of like art, the profession of architecture. Um, and one of the things that's so wonderful about our Squatch group is that we do have such a diversity in ages, political viewpoints, and um, just all of the other wonderful things. Um, one of my squash buddies is uh, Andy is 84 and he is very good and he can beat me. Um, and, you know, again, we have kids that are, we call them the farm team, which was made as a joke as like the up and coming team. But then we actually decided it's kind of cute. So we should actually bring them to farms now as part of the program because they should learn about where food comes from so we kind of took it um as kind of like a just a saying and made it literal um they are the farm team so we have the elementary school kids through again um folks like andy who are in their 80s and are still competing nationally which is really badass um but it's i think and you know we have Democrats and Republicans um, and you know a lot of our kids in the Raleigh Pro Portland program um, were either born out of the US or parents um, have come to Maine um, my students family is from Somalia her grandfather is in a refugee camp um, but she was born in the U.S. and she's now a freshman this year. Tough year to become a freshman um, in high school. 
but I think just seeing so many different people part of a community and we don't all agree on everything all the time but still are really respectful of each other um, is something that I really value and even though surprisingly I live in the Portland Peninsula my neighbor next door is a Republican um, Louie and he's very nice and um, we have a good relationship nonetheless I have my Joe Biden and my uh, Sarah Gideon signs in my yard um, so I, I, I guess I would say, and I have, so my neighborhood is oldest neighborhood in the city of Portland, um, largely, and my house is actually the oldest house in the city that was built by a black family and is still standing, um, next to the, um, the historic black church. Um, but after the African American community moved out of the neighborhood in the early 1900s, um, either moving up to the hill or the St. John's neighborhood, because many of them worked in the railroad. Um, a lot of Italians moved into the neighborhood. So one of my neighbors, she's in her 80s, um, Asanta down the street, um, is Italian. She's the last um, Italian um, that's like from Naples, Italy, um, on the street. Her husband, who came here when he was 14 and had lived on our street since he was 14, died last winter, which was really sad. But she's wonderful. I had 38 um, tomato plants this year, and so I've been making a lot of sauce. So she's been really sweet. She always brings me Italian cookies in the pandemic. Um, and uh, she likes, I have had over 200 cucumbers in my yard. So she's always uh, taking her my cucumbers, which I'm thankful for, and giving me advice on how to make better tomato sauce, um, which is really sweet. Um, so I do really like that sort of, yeah, there's like a mix of all sorts of things. There's a lot of trades people. We have a male woman that's down the street um, in her 20s. Um, my tenant is a floor finisher. One of my parking tenants is a landscape architect. Um, we've got just a really nice mixture. Um, Louis is a plumber uh, of just all, all different folks in our neighborhood. And I think that's one of the things that makes it vibrant. Um, and I'd love to see more of that in our communities as well. Because it, it is easy to keep the bubble. And one of the things I try really hard to do um, is, I guess, break my bubble. And um, not my pandemic bubble, <laughs> but my, like, my normal bubble. And just make sure that I'm not um, being too insular in like having, I guess, a community that is too like-minded like me. Um, because I think being, oh God, like the summer, my only pandemic friend um, was a Republican QAnon conspiracy theorist, uh, which was a tough one considering I'm um, a very progressive Democrat. Um, and we were largely able to have civil conversations but I did get canceled recently, unfortunately. <laughs> but it, again, we both did value um, for our summer of tennis, the um, being able to try to find the commonalities that we have. Honestly, I would say we all have more, more in common than 
than you know the pundits would and the news would sometimes like us to believe um Certainly. I think that our, yeah. our news media and especially around election time, um, I personally am really annoyed that you can't opt out of all of the flyers that they put in your mailbox. Right. Uh, so <laughs> I think I have a brick of flyers at this point between my husband. The easiest thing is to I. vote early because then we take you off the list. <laughs> uh, hey, that's great information to know. I, I would definitely yeah. have done that because the environmentalist in me is like, how oh, yeah. many trees did we kill for you to send right. me all of these? And, you know, at for, least seven flyers because that's how many contacts it takes to like encourage most average voters to come out, which just sounds crazy. It's a lot of contacts. Um, but yes, the Secretary of State does provide updated information. Uh, so I always try to get uh, as soon as, you know, absentee ballot requests are possible. Um, I always submit mine and then return it because after the Secretary of State updates the list, campaigns who have limited resources will pull all the people that it shows have returned ballots because we shouldn't waste our time calling people who've already returned ballots. It's too late, uh, regardless of how they voted. So that is an easy way to get pulled off is to one, have a party affiliation. Cause I think sometimes people feel if they're unenrolled, if they're independents in Maine, that they, I don't know, that it's better. And I mean, again, party affiliation is up to each individual. However, independents are unenrolled people get hit by both sides because they're in the middle typically and they are up for grabs. So I joke um, with people. Um, sometimes people will be like, oh yeah, I'm independent because um, I don't want to have to deal with all the party stuff. And I'm like, actually, you're going to get hit with twice as much because everyone is trying to buy for your boat, which maybe that's flattering, but you will cut your mail in half if I you enroll in a party. At voter registration, you should be able to say, this is how I want you to contact me, right? So oh, yeah. uh, by mail, because certainly there are, um, well, and I don't know the, the logistics of what you've done kind of in your campaign to say, like, is mail because it's virtually in front of you, you know, something, right. but yeah. like, uh, you know, for me, the anything that comes in my mailbox immediately goes into my recycling bin because I'm like, oh, yeah, me too. okay, yeah, I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm whatever this flyer mm -hmm. is, maybe it's going to catch my attention, but I'm going to go somewhere else and research what it is that I want to know. I think oh, yeah, the more personal contact, the better. I mean, obviously, doors is number one, and then phone calls is number two. Um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty low. I always think, too, people hate ads on tv oh, and i was like turn off your tv when i i haven't had a right? tv in a really long time but <laughs> if you don't watch your tv if no one watches tv there will be no point in ads and <laughs> everybody um, during the pandemic is watching tv right i mean except for the people who don't have have tv so honestly in this <laughs> right? election in this election year that's probably a pretty good, uh, right. Exactly. Know, so there are right. And part of the reason we have to raise so much money in politics is because, uh, ad buys for television are so expensive. So I was like, if you want us to spend, if you want us to not have to raise so much money and, um, not be bombarded, then the easiest and most effective way to reach voters is to go to a red or canvassing, which is really cheap 
because then you just have to smile and maybe you have like a little palm card that you could leave with them, which otherwise would be mailed. Um, but that's the most effective neighbor talking to neighbor. Um, I've been making a lot of calls at night uh, for Sarah Gideon's campaign and we're like coordinated. So technically like we're calling for Sarah Gideon, but we're also calling for Shelly and um, everyone else, Joe and Kamala and up and down the ticket. So we try to make it efficient because again, there's only so many people involved <laughs> here. But yes, it is it is a lot of uh pollution. <laughs> it is. I know. But and it, elections and are important. It's frustrating and elections are extremely important and people should get out and vote. And last night um at the Fine Home Building Summit, so I've been going to the Fine Home Building Summit and the Maine oh, yeah. Indoor Air Quality Virtual Summit uh, you know, yes. this year. And so yep. last night Ted Benson uh on his t-shirt it said, Oh my God, just vote already. Uh was the <laughs> right. he was wearing, you know, because voting is so uh -huh. important. And unfortunately, yeah, you know, for me, some of the ways that they send the information is just more frustrating than anything else. It's not going to keep oh, yeah. me from voting, uh, uh, of uh -huh. course, but you know, I, I, I wish that the way that we kind of approached it was somewhat different because I understand yeah. why you have to do the things that you're doing, but at the same time, it's right. so frustrating. And I'm sure that they're, oh, they, yeah. I've heard it from everybody else. Like they're tired of the TV ads or they're tired of the, flyers, I know. Or they're tired of the calls or they're tired of the text messages or they're tired of the yeah. roadside signs and right. you know, other stuff is, um, oh, yeah. and, and knowing people who are from other countries who are like, gosh, the way that you do your elections and the stuff that it says on the, you know, TVs and, you know, watching the debates or, you know, it's so hard to find under all the, this person voted for this or that without kind yeah. of the context to, uh -huh. to the way our politics work in oh, the United absolutely. States. Right. It's hard to find the, like, well, where's the, where's the bottom line? What are the, you know, six main points that this particular person is going to fight tooth and nail for on, uh -huh. you know, because sometimes in politics it's, you know, I will support your whatever bill thing that you have if yep. you support mine, because those are the things that yep. make the most sense. And, you know, it goes right. back to a lot of like, you know, local politics and being able to do things on a local level, because just like we talked about with housing, things that are appropriate in certain areas or in certain cities, or, you know, some uh -huh. things are built around, you know, New York City, which has a huge population. And then, uh -huh. um, so for a couple of years, my husband and I lived in um, Rochester, New York. Yep. So some of their policies are built around the city, which make absolute sense for the city, but don't make a whole mm. lot of sense for the rural population of the rest of the state of New York, you know? And so it's right. in politics, I feel like it's, it's similar is, you know, local government and what you are able to do there. But uh, on, on the yeah. political realm, it's also super frustrating to me from the energy perspective that if we're going to have codes, then everyone should have to adopt it and you should have to continually adopt it as progressive you know, as it, mm -hmm. as it progresses to, so that we're all getting better at, you know, efficiency right. or We're safety finally on 2015. 
<laughs> I know. We, we got to yeah. 2015 in 2020 from 2009, right. which exactly. I don't even remember when we adopted 2009, but even then, 2010, I think. Yeah. You're not necessarily required to do it depending on where you are, which is. Um, there is, yeah, definitely a lack of enforcement um, of MUBAC, uh, the Maine Uniform Building and Energy Code, um, in certain parts of the state, especially smaller parts. Um, a number of years ago, I was um, engaged with the Maine U.S. Green Building Council and would go up to Augusta to lobby to try to encourage expansion of MUBAC um, as our Republicans, friends, and legislators were um, trying, and oddly, the realtors, I don't get that, were trying to um, provide more exceptions for like smaller communities. Um, and it's so funny because I always tell people, I was like, look, building codes are your base. They're the bare minimum. <laughs> like with the energy code, I mean, we're still in 2009 with the inner or the energy code. Um, we didn't adopt the 2015 version of that, which I think does have some um, higher insulation levels. Um, but it's even so, levels, is it not higher insulation? Um, they okay. have lower air infiltration rates and the requirement to move Got from it. visual inspection to um, like a blower door? To, to an actual blower door test. And this is one of the things that I find frustrating, especially in the single family realm, is that you know it, it's it's wonderful and terrible all at the same time that building a house is somewhat accessible to to anyone right you know so there are plenty oh, yeah. of mm -hmm. homeowners who the big box retailers i mean who build they just their go own and, houses yeah but there's so many different products so many different mm -hmm. ways to put things together that has made it so much more complicated i mean even me as an architect mm -hmm. where i say i get trained on this i do continuing education i understand I, I understand mm -hmm. building science on a level that most architects don't because it's something that i really care oh, about yeah is mm -hmm. have we transversed to the point where it's not really safe for someone who's not in this build environment to mm -hmm. actually build things anymore and and part of the problem with the trade industry having a lack of people in it is you know because it has been accessible to to other people, have we not raised the bar in our own industry to pay right. those people more? I oh, I know it's expensive to build, and that's why yeah, we, we have talk no contractor about licensing or training in Maine. I mean, right. I lived in Massachusetts when I was in grad school, and they actually have contractor um, licensing there, and it's wonderful. My ex husband was a car uh, carpenter and did got his license when he was there and it was really great because they teach you how to go through um IBC and like like look Understand up code stuff the, yeah right yeah. I mean uh -huh. our weather that would be so valuable in Maine even regardless of like the sort of complexities of like envelopes right and like the silly things like windows like how do we get a how do we how do we detail a good window? I mean, oof, I think probably 10 architects would come up with 15 different ways, at least. Oh, um, at least. At least, right. Um, but, you know, again, from a, I see largely because most of my work is in commercial 
um, retrofits, this even ADA is just like a huge thing that I'm really passionate about, but it's shocking, um, even though it's been 30 years now, just even um, like knobs, you see knobs all the time and commercial projects and it drives me crazy. It's so easy. It doesn't cost anything not to have a knob and to do a lever handle, but uh, there's so many people that are impacted by that with arthritis and um, other sort of, any sort of other mobility impairments. Um, and it's so funny with COVID too, I joke that maybe some of these ADA uh, requirements will stick because I can open a lever handle with my elbow, with my knee, with my shoulder, you know, like I don't have to with my foot, <laughs> like well, carrying what, a baby. <laughs> like, What is the inconvenience to the rest of us to not do that, right? I, I mean, so, I mean, I love, well, I will say my big ass dog. Um, sorry if you have to bleep that. He's 77 pounds. He can open, he can open a lever handle. And that is the inconvenience that I have experienced since <laughs> I have lever <laughs> handles um, is that my dog, um, he has trouble pulling, but he can push down and push, push out, out any door. Right. He, he's tries really hard to put, to he knows what to do but it's hard to like stand up push down and then pull that movement is something thank god he has not mastered but it is amazing to watch him try all the contractors next door um because obviously my my exterior door opens um pushes in so but the storm door on the outside pulls out so he's always trying to open the storm door to let himself in the house and <laughs> um hilariously the cat has learned how to get out but the dog hasn't because she'll she'll pop the lever and then in like one motion and then kind of pushes her body against it so it doesn't latch and then she pushes out. So she has like a two-step process, but the dog hasn't realized he needs to just pop the latch for first and then push out. He tries to do it all in one motion. Um, but I realized my cat was sneaking out one day as I was having lunch outside um, when I saw her slink back. And I real I actually watched her do this whole, this two-part like um, pop the latch and then like kind of wedge it out a little bit and then push it out. So the seven <laughs> pound cat can do it. So I was like, that's like the, there are some little tricky things like that, but otherwise, I mean, yeah, no, everyone, everyone well, who's ever carried a bag of groceries or a baby or luggage can appreciate or lived through a pandemic can appreciate um, the convenience of a no touch lever handle. So, yeah. Yeah. And so I think this whole idea of, of um, you know, the ADA or aging in place or taking that huh? into consideration is the next level of our built environment yeah. as well. Because the reality is we're not just building this structure. If you've done it well, you're not just building this structure for the current occupant. You're building this oh, structure yeah. for, for future occupants. And, huh? and what might right. that look like? in the future. And, and another reason why it's, it's frustrating and difficult that anybody can build a home is the things that they did a hundred years ago when anybody could build a home was, 
we did we didn't care as much about energy back then so our buildings dried out because they didn't have insulation in them they were drafty you owned the back 40 you cut down your wood you know it was Uh we don't have that anymore and energy costs are are really expensive and if you're still building it the way you were building it 25 years ago but you're you're also like, well, I still have to save energy, so I'm going to put insulation and everything in here. Then you're actually reducing yeah. the durability of the structure that you're building. So uh-huh. it's great, great that you can creating moisture issues. Build, yeah, right. It's great that you can build it and it stands upright. But if you don't understand, and, and I'm and I say this, you know, like you said, because we don't have licensure in the state of of right. Maine for for builders, but also there are a lot of architects that don't understand right you know, we also don't have continuing layers. education requirements yeah right? correct <laughs> unlike some states so we're, we're doing a disservice to our professions and the built environment across the whole is that we're not mm-hmm. requiring continued licensure continued education mm-hmm. and everything that as the products and the things that we build with change we need to know what those changes have an effect in our buildings. And it also forces the issue that I keep coming back to, which is not everybody can afford to build a single family home. So if we're not all stretching the dollars, building bad things, what dollars can we then use to provide communities where we do have, you know, multi, you know, you've created a single family home that's now a, a two family structure. Yep. You know, we've created, um, you, you said you moved from Washington and, you know, San Francisco mm-hmm. has the problem where I think the, the maximum level of building for, for the most part there, I think is what, four stories or something. So it's a right. very, that's largely, low... port- most of Portland is four stories on the peninsula. My neighborhood is 65 feet, but most is 45 feet, um, right. so which includes, your elevator overrun on on um, in the R six, which is most of the peninsula. Um, so that's that's a pretty tough. That's a pretty tight floor to floor. If again, when you get to floor stories, you know if you have you're required by IVC to have an elevator. You know, having your top of your uh, elevator tower parapet at forty five is tight. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And so, you know, we've created these yeah. low areas. We haven't built up certain cities. We don't have anywhere to put people. What's the density? Mm-hmm. Like, let's go ahead and improve tiny homes. Like, I don't get the sole thing, you know, tiny homes and ADUs mm-hmm. and and improve the density. But as we're improving yep. the density, as we saw from COVID and this idea that people are leaving cities is we also need right. to take into account our air quality and the fact that the reality is we spend um it's funny because we used to say 90 percent of our time indoors but if you think about 90 percent of your time indoors that means you spend three hours a day outside and i'm sure during the Mm. pandemic you know plenty of people who haven't spent three hours a day outside i haven't spent three hours a day outside Every right. Day, right. So it's really more like 95 or 98% of your, your mm-hmm. time indoor. It, I mean, that's, it's even if you're just a lucky person who decided to go for a walk at lunchtime, like, right. You know? Right. And so, yeah, no, I'm very lucky. I mean, I live in town, but I have, the, I have, I have about a 700 square foot yard, um, in addition to my parking spaces. And yeah, I probably am averaging three hours out cause I eat breakfast and lunch and I take the, um, and cat's on a leash and the dog hangs out in the yard in the afternoon after work for a little bit. Um, they insist on it now. 
um, pretty vocally. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just like, even the cat is just like, Rawr! and it's really upset. They like know when the end of the day is, but you know, it, it is true. I would also say, which is kind of interesting, my lot, again, is the oldest house in the, in the neighborhood um, from 1844, because we had the fire. Um, but one of the things I love about it and bought it is it touches three of the lot lines. It touches the back and two of the sides um, at its widest. So all of my land is at the front of the lot, which is really valuable because I think if I have, like most of uh, Portland now has a 10 foot uh, or five foot, I guess you could say setback, cumulative 10. And you can push that to one side. It does create fire separation issues. But what's wonderful about having all my lot in the front is again, I was able to grow 200 cucumbers and um, plant 38 tomatoes and I have two little patios and all these things. And it's very interesting because being forced to hang out in my front yard also is very social, sometimes more social than I like. Um, but in the pandemic, it's great because I'm always in the front yard. Um, so everyone, my my lot, my house is probably set back about 40 feet from the street, which again, um, the zoning would require it to be right on the street, less than five feet off the sidewalk. So I'm grandfathered in because it's so old. And it's interesting, living here, I actually would become an advocate of pushing um, you know, houses to the back because the front house is, I joke that the front of my house is for the we, the back is for the me. Um, even though I have no backyard, but I think about it, I spent a lot of money this um, spring installing a period appropriate fence because I'm next to a nationally registered building and had gnome landscape add a couple patios and granite curbing and all the things. And it was kind of a no expenses spared project. Um, Thankfully, with COVID, it felt extra worth it, one could say, because um, I feel obligated to spend, you know, three or four hours out because I work from home and we're all stuck at home so much. I feel like the least I can do is hang out in my yard for a couple hours a day. Um, so we're usually out by six um, in the morning, which now is pretty dark, but I have a couple lanterns. Um, so I sit and I journal on my little table. Um, I'm lucky too because I've got the contractors outside um, putting up the Covetris um, North America headquarters and the Brutel. Uh, so they get to work largely between six and seven. So even if I'm outside at six and it's dark, I am definitely not alone. There's like a hundred workers outside <laughs> my door. But so it's very social. And again, I, I, I've been able to get to know not only my immediate neighbors, the neighbors on my block, but other folks that are walking into work downtown or from um, the Mundry South housing complex, which is down the block. And it's very interesting, this idea of these front porches that of yesteryear that had for almost a century been, or half a century been vacant um, as people retreated to their me side of their backyards and all of these backyard projects. Um, 
but it's really the front yard that's the social yard. Um, with the pandemic nationally, people have been saying they're hanging out on their front porches just with the the desperate hope that someone will walk by and they can wave. <laughs> There's so but, much to that, though. I think yeah. um, that the reality is that we, with the internet, we can be so much more connected than we've ever been before, and yet we're really mm -hmm. disconnected. And that's a big problem Absolutely. that I have. Yep with the traditional subdivision and not creating neighborhoods and communities is mm -hmm. that the traditional subdivision, the houses are maybe, maybe the density is kind of okay. in the fact that they're somewhat closer together, but that yep. they all have the garage facing the street and you drive your car into your garage in, and, and you, you walk never, through, right. Right. You don't know any yeah. neighbors. You don't, not like we live on a dead end street. So we live in a single family home, but we live on a dead end street mm -hmm. and we have a dog and almost all of our neighbors have dogs. So we're all out in the neighborhood walking our dogs and, and you see each yeah. other, you know, mm -hmm. but in a lot of neighborhoods, they've, they've done away with, with this, I don't know, idea that you there's no front yard anymore. They're right up on the street right. to create these backyards. And then they have backyards and they're close together. So then they fence them in so they can't see each other either because right. that's, that's your me space. That's your private yeah, space. Yeah, right. It is interesting. Yeah. And, you know, my sister lives uh, in town in Lancaster City in Pennsylvania and they have a front porch and they hang out on their front porch because they, you know, her kids walk to school and everything. And so yep. during the pandemic, the only way to see their friends was their friends would come was the front and they would porch, hang yeah. out on the porch and their friends would hang right. out on the sidewalk. And that was their, right. their social time, you know? Yeah, and it's no, totally. Same here. Yeah. Of, you know, and especially, um, with the whole idea of aging in place as well is like it, people laugh, but have you seen the people who are retired who sit in their garage because it faces the street and like that's right, where they totally. sit and hang out because uh -huh. maybe they don't have a front porch anymore or yeah. they want to see what's going on, what's, you know, what's in yeah, the neighborhood. Right. And we've, we've become too much of a work society, too much inclusion. Like I, I see my friends on Facebook or online or whatever. And it's like, mm -hmm. that's not actual interaction anymore. And what I right. have seen as coming forth a lot more in the pandemic is people are looking for that connection. They're, they didn't like know. Real life. Yeah, IRL they, connection. <laughs> yeah. In real life connection. Like even right. as separate as we've gotten from like, working too many hours and the go, go, go mm -hmm. society we have in the United States is that when the pandemic said you can no longer see your friends, we took a step back and said, but wait, even that very small interaction I had was so critically important right. to our mental health. Mm -hmm. And so now let's bring our neighborhoods back to that. Let's create these right. spaces where you hang out, where you yeah, gather. Where right. You the front patio. Like I have like two front patios now. Right. And my, I mean, again, I don't have a choice really, but I'm glad I don't have a choice because otherwise they would have been in my backyard and I wouldn't have all these informal interactions with my neighbors. Some of which sometimes I, you know, want to just be alone in journal um, or whatever, eat my lunch in private. But I don't have the choice. Like I could eat my lunch inside if I wanted to be alone. Um, but it it's really wonderful to have just people stop by or I'll have friends that ride their bike by and if they see I'm out, we'll stop and chat. Um, which again, if it was a backyard that was fenced and all the things, no one would like, stop. No one would no one would ever yeah, they wouldn't even see me there. So the hilarious part is I have um 
it's funny, my landscape architect likes it, which is very sweet. Um, but I created essentially a temporary hedge wanting to provide or thinking I wanted to provide myself more privacy from the street during the summer. So I used my tomato cages um, and my tomato cages are lined up um, alongside one of the patios. And the tomatoes are so dense and so massive that I can't see over them. <laughs> it's so funny, but I kind of am looking forward to in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be taking those out due to the season. Um, and I'm looking forward to um, being able to see, have an unobstructed view to the sidewalk. Uh, the nice thing about having front patios as well is Space, uh, space Gallery, which is a local um, art gallery and performance space in Portland, um, is also commissioning works of art in spaces downtown and has selected um, due to the historical significance of my house and it's the neighborhood. Um, my house as one of the installation sites. So as of the 9th, my front yard is going to be transformed into a essentially walkthrough gallery um, each night. And there's going to be always, there's an artist that's working on an installation related to Black soldiers in the Civil War, three of the original inhabitants' um, sons, uh, Abraham and Harriet Niles, who built the house, their son, three of their sons fought in the Civil War. Um, and it's, I think it's going to be a pretty spooky installation because there are uh, a lot of Black soldiers um, kind of bizarre bizarrely um or worked as grave diggers um so i'm guessing the, the artist hasn't told me yet because she wants it to be a surprise and i've told her she can do absolutely anything she wants with my yard um, but i imagine there will be some coffins in my yard um <laughs> you know representative of the graves and the bodies that you know um and the lives that were lost um so I realized that during the three weeks that this exhibit is up, I might not, it might feel disrespectful for me to be spending all this time in my yard and I might conveniently will also be cold. But um, I think it would probably not be possible to have this sort of public exhibit um, in my yard that people will walk through if my house were again pushed on the street and it was a backyard because it it will probably still feel uncomfortable for people because they will have to come in my picket fence you know in my picket um fence by the gate and they'll be very clearly i would say we always talk about in architecture school the arrival sequence um and again i, I can't take credit for it too much but my house has such an incredible arrival sequence because it does not, like the worst, I always say the antithesis of arrival sequence is the, right, you drive into your garage and enter like via, you know, a pile of unorganized, like discarded, unused things in your garage, <laughs> you know, into the house. But I'm lucky, again, when I don't have a car. So, you know, uh, I have the gate which goes by all the tomatoes and the two um, the two stone patios up 
past the garden and into the house, um, which is lovely um, and unsheltered in the cold, but that's all right. Um, but it definitely feels like as soon as I open the gate and see all my wonderful plants and my um, Adirondack chairs and all the things, I just, it's very comforting and is definitely feels like I'm coming home. And I can't imagine if my arrival sequence to coming home was pulling into a garage <laughs> in the garage door, closing behind me. And it was like, welcome home. That just doesn't feel the same. <laughs> yeah. No, I, so, I picking some tomatoes that. as I go into my kitchen are like, well, a yeah, lot in nicer. the front yard. It's like, oh, <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, we're going to have something tomato. Oh, yeah. Because my look, tenant this is, is right, always but... just like on his way. Like, and then he has to, he goes around to what originally had been the back door, the back side door. And, but yeah, usually picks his dinner essentially as he's, as he's walking. walking. Right. Which is kind of funny. At one point, I was like trying to count. All the vegetables is why I know I have 200 um, cucumbers. I have no idea. I know it's over 60 pounds of tomatoes. Um, but because my tenant is always just eating food as he's like walking into the house, like I see him because oftentimes I'm in the yard. Like I just see him like just, you know, as he's walking by the bushes, just grabbing tomatoes and eating moth vine. Like I have no idea. And the same with cucumbers. I really have no idea because my tenant is just – I, again, it's perfect. It's obviously what I'd like, but it is kind of funny. I was like, sometimes he reports, he's like, I took three cucumbers. <laughs> so I'm like, so I can add it to the tally the next time. Um, but so that's, it's, um, that's yeah. really interesting in the case for, you know, this multi-level living, you know, and mm -hmm. ways around the, the single family concept and having, having right. other people and, and who, who might have been in your bubble during COVID when, you know, mm -hmm. you're living in a 5,000 square foot house and there are two people like, Can't what, imagine. Do, right. I feel like people are learning so much more about their houses and, you know, that they're, they're not set up for, you know, work from home scenarios or, Right. The, you know, you, you sleep eight hours a day, maybe you're home for dinner and you, you're, you're gone. It's like, you know, you're in your house all the time and you're like, there's this one room we never go in or. You oh know, yeah, totally. So right. my yeah. first house was in Cape Elizabeth and it was a single family house. And I was like 22 when um, I got it. It was shortly after I'd moved like the year after I graduated and moved to Maine. And it just seemed like what, every young couple who could afford to do so should do is buy a cute, like lovely little house in Cape Elizabeth, um, lovely suburb. And it was a beautiful house and all my neighbors were very nice. Um, and we didn't know the neighbors, but you couldn't, there were no sidewalks and it was generally safe to like walk alongside the road, but you're really like watching walking alongside the road, there were no sidewalks. And I could walk to Fort Williams and that was beautiful. But I, at the time, I couldn't walk to anywhere to eat or to get groceries. Um, and so I had to really essentially, um, and there was no, um, there was no shoulder on the road and it was a pretty windy road. So I didn't really feel that 
safe walking or even like riding. I ride all the time now, but it just wasn't, it wasn't well laid out for what, for any sort of multimodal transport. There was no bus system. So I did feel in some strange way, very trapped there um, because I literally, even though I had, I had a, I had a car at the time, um, I felt very trapped in the fact that I had to, in order to really leave my house and go anywhere, I had to get in the car. And I guess I just really hate driving. Um, but the idea that I had to get in the car, and honestly, when you're, when you're in a car, it's, I just, I really just don't like cars. When you're in a car, you're like in this weird little environment. You've got your, I don't know, your radio, you're like, you're listening to NPR or some sort of, um, music podcast or something and but you're also very focused on the road you're not thinking about your neighborhood the community I mean technically I guess you can wave at someone who is passing you if you see a, someone you know but there are so many people whose their cars all look the same you're really isolated whereas when I walk um, in my neighborhood I probably see two or three people I know um just casually walking down the street and they're unintended casual interactions but it's i just don't get that like sort of that sort of it it creates that sort of sense of community just being out and about and if you're just dependent on cars and everyone's in cars like everyone sees me and i kind of joke it's um even when i'm riding a bike i would rather walk than ride if i can because I can, it's easier to stop um, and chat with people. Even as a riding, you're, it is, I don't wanna say that in car driving, you're definitely probably the most alert and focused and, and trapped in your um, aluminum and glass bubble. And cycling, you're also very alert because you know, you're riding, you're worried about getting doored and trying to navigate broken glass and getting doored and the cars and the buses and all the things, pedestrians coming out. But at least being a pedestrian, it's, I just feel more engaged in my environment because I can, to a certain extent, uh, you still have to watch out for car drivers um, and cyclists, but you can let your guard down a little bit and just experience everything around you a little bit better. But even on my bike, I mean, I will see people all the time and end up stopping and chatting with someone, um, oftentimes clients, because um, again, Portland and Maine is small. Um, and I would never have those interactions if I were in a car. Because like, if you pass someone in a car, and you're, I mean, the best you could do is just wave your hand and wave. Um, but if someone is walking and someone's cycling, it's easy to be like wave and say, hey, can have a couple minutes and just stop and chat. Um, and so I guess that's for me, just I, there are these lovely, one of the reasons why I came to Maine um, from Washington State is there are these lovely little New England old downtowns. And there are often these sort of residential centers immediately adjacent to them that are really walkable. And I think that the ability to have these multimodal, potentially car-free 
or more um, these levels of transportation that are enable community are just really valuable to me even on a bus I mean I used to take the bus um, sometimes um, I had jobs in Brunswick and it goes to Bowdoin College and Main Street and Freeport and again the bus is fascinating and highly social um, you see people and even if you're just people watching it's just such an experience as opposed to sitting in your own car I can listen to NPR anywhere um, or listen to, you know, a song. But just, again, seeing people who are different than myself, hearing their conversations, interacting with someone I hadn't planned on seeing is just really valuable. I think to my experience, but I think for everyone. Um, and I think, yeah, we need more of that. And as architects and as planners and officials, the more we can kind of foster those sort of interactions. I think, I think it, for me, it, it definitely, it builds a lot of empathy. Like in the morning, like I testified uh, last week, their Preble Street um, is, has opened up a 24 seven, like day shelter sort of thing, um, both with the pandemic, but also it's just great in general. Um, I live two blocks from Portland's wet shelter. So when Blake and I are on our walks in the morning, um, almost everyone we see is home or unhoused or formerly known as homeless. And uh, it is really, it's funny to me um, thinking about the fact that most people are, are scared of these men who might stumble about a little bit. Um, but they are all so sweet and nice and friendly. And I don't want to say normal, but, um, but they're just, uh, they're normal. It's so funny. I, one day I walked up and there were two guys, you know, chatting in a doorway um, recess. And I was like, oh, what are these guys talking about? I was like, oh, it's my buddy Rob. And I was like, hey, Rob. And he and his buddy were talking about, that, you know, my dog, of course, decided to pee on the tree. So I was like waiting for him. And what were they talking about? Were they talking about robbing me? No, they were talking about an amazing dinner that someone had made for them. And they were talking about it had like rice and peppers and onions and garlic and pasta. And that's what these two men were talking about in the recess. Um, and just seeing them bundled up as I was approaching, you know, it's so, I mean, as a young woman, as a person in general, you're like, oh, I wonder what, wonder what is transpiring. Um, but it's just so funny when you actually stop and listen, you're just like, oh, wow. So I joked, I was like, that sounds like a pretty good meal. Um, nice to see you, Rob, because it's, you know, this dude I see all the time. And he's like, yeah, it was a pretty good meal. Um, so I guess, yeah, I think those interactions, just getting to know each other, I think we realize, again, we have so much more in common um, than we sometimes, yeah. yeah. I think that's a, that's a great place. I would love so. to talk to you all day. You are a wealth <laughs> of, of knowledge and it has been so much fun. Um, and I think yeah. that you've, you've left it in a good place, which is, you know, we can, we can, kind of target that that one little last segment mm -hmm. that you had, which is homelessness is not an architectural issue, 
but how do we use architecture to foster our emotional, social, and healthy well-being? And I think yeah. that is what we as architects and builders and the built environment and you know our policy and things that we're changing need to remember is that our buildings are meant to support and help us grow, not just mm-hmm. provide a singular service. And so I describe, you yep. know, house as a system or building as a system. They're all interrelated parts. And those interrelated parts is the occupant is also part of that thing that we like to just yep. say like, okay, this is our building, but that's not it's not the case. And, you know, in, in commercial realms and healthy building structures as, you know, it's frustrating to hear people in policy say like, we should stop building these fancy buildings and, and concentrate more on our students. And what we're not realizing is that the indoor air quality and the health of our buildings has a direct correlation to the emotional state and the learning ability of our students that are in that building. Yeah, you know, the, right. the way that we design our communities has an emotional, social, and, uh, well-being of how a community works and how it becomes vibrant and how it stays alive. And so we need to talk in terms of things that are other than, you know, and so Mm -hmm. it's been a real pleasure talking to you today and hearing, you know, how your community has both impacted your work, but also your everyday life. And I think that that is a valid point for people, you know, kind of listening here. It's been the point where we've been like uh, on, on several social issues across the board, like climate change. A lot of people in the country think that climate change is an issue, but they're too busy to do anything about it or they don't know what what to do. And so mm-hmm. it's like, okay, yeah, that's important. I'll deal with it later. And so now some of these yep. things are, how do we make space and time? How has the pandemic given us time to look at and think about our built environment in a different way and how it can really have an impact on the things that are bigger than just four walls and a ceiling. So anyway, like I said, I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to uh, to talk with me. Um, I'd love to, I mean, really, I think I would love to have you back on several more times to talk about all kinds of things, but um, thank you for for taking time. No problem. Thank you for having me and uh, have a wonderful um, afternoon. Thanks for tuning in to the E3 podcast. I hope you guys have been enjoying these episodes as much as I have. I've had some really interesting guests, a lot of great professionals in the building science and architecture and building realm. So thank you to all the guests that have been on If you're enjoying the podcast, like and share on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or leave me a comment on the website. And if there's somebody you'd like to hear from or you'd like me to have on the podcast, send me an email, emily at matramarch.com. Otherwise, have a fantastic weekend and we'll see you again next week.